0: The mention of Antichrist conjures up foreboding visions of an ultimate, arrogant, violent tyrant. A little less than 200 years before Jesus, an Old Testament Antichrist already strutted across the pages of history. Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, where, with our study leader Dave Woodson, we focus our attention on this little-known Syrian. I was flying back from the conference in Rhode Island. I was at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. But I was sitting next to a couple from East Lansing, Michigan. If it's any comfort to you, as I watch the news, I would think that everybody's on food lines up in Michigan. Looks a little bit like Haiti. Nobody's working. Everybody lost their job. And this East Lansing couple was assuring me that that's not so. That they were still eating. That people were still going to Walmart. And it just reminds me... It's the fear that's in my heart. You kind of go to Walmart and think nobody will be there, and the place is packed. And one of the things I want to encourage you is that the Lord's not given us the spirit of fear. So don't allow fear to get a hold of you. Especially young couples, you do need to save, but don't hoard. For example, if everybody stops buying anything, we're all going to be like Katy so there 's always balance in these things, but that 's an aside that has nothing to do with my message today. But the doctor that I was sitting next to you from each Lansing was sharing that they believe this is the end. you know they believe that Israel 's going to attack Iran in the next few weeks before president elect Obama takes over because the new administration won 't let them fly over, and boy, he gave me a whole scenario, man, he had, then there's going to be a war against the South and Egypt, and he had it all nailed down, which is all fine and good. In other words, he was taking his modern newspaper, laying it side by side, and he had a whole scenario. Uh, My whole life, I've been involved in movements that do that. In fact, I just mentioned 666. And man, you got a blockbuster, right? You know, just put those words. In other words, you mentioned Antichrist and you got an audience. In fact, I was thinking back in my own lifetime uh, when President Kennedy became the president. And then when he was wounded and then he died right here in Dallas. And we've just been remembering that horrible time and, and how we need to pray for safety for all of our political officials. It really has gripped my heart with a burden to pray for those that are ruling over it, all the way down to our local governing officials, including our law enforcement officers like Charles. It's right here today that we cover all of those that are involved in protecting us and seeking to govern us to keep them safe. I remember when I was a kid, you know, because President Kennedy was wounded in the head. Revelation talks about Antichrist being wounded in the head. There was major teaching. He was going to rise again from the dead, and he would be the Antichrist. Then I would sit down with somebody else and Khrushchev, was the Antichrist. I only lived about thirty minutes from the United Nations. So when Khrushchev banged his shoe on the table and said, I will bury you, then I went to church and I heard messages on Khrushchev is the Antichrist. Then there's been several leaders of the United Nations. How many of you have ever had a conversation where someone says man this is the Antichrist? Probably all of you have. But do you realize that Antichrist has already come? Do you realize that there is an Antichrist? Not the ultimate Antichrist that's talked about in Daniel chapter 7. But what we want to do today, in fact, one of the things that's always good to do, is that your Heavenly Father loves you. And, he, and he's writing an incredibly powerful story in history. And he likes to, like in any good story, you give themes. And then you give like introduction to the theme. And then you develop it later. In the Word of God... As you go to the book of Daniel, there's an ultimate Antichrist. And we're going to be talking a lot about him as we go, especially when we get into chapter 11. But we're going to find out that there's an Old Testament Antichrist. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're from a Jewish background, you celebrate Hanukkah about the same time that your Gentile or Goyim, you know, friends celebrate Christmas. And Hanukkah is about the celebration of the restoration that came when Antiochus The madman, that's what the Jews called him. Antiochus the maniac, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means the manifest one, and he actually meant I'm God manifested. And he's an intriguing figure and interesting It's strange to me because we talked a lot the last time we were together about a world-class, powerful ruler named Alexander the Great. I actually spent more time on Alexander than Daniel ever would. As you turn to Daniel chapter 8, we find out that this great leader that dominated all of ancient history until Julius Caesar, in fact, he's still inspiring movies and books and all kinds of things, Alexander the Great is a really great, powerful ruler in all of history. Hardly anybody would give a footnote to Antiochus IV. He was a little ruler. But in God's inspired revelation, he's given a ton of space. And he is the Antichrist of the Old Testament. So what are we going to learn from this? We're not just going to have a history lesson this morning, but we want to learn from the career of this Old Testament Antichrist, about the heart of our God, the heart of our Heavenly Father, what really gets him upset, and what are the characteristics in a governmental leader that he really is going to judge. We also want to learn about his heart towards his Old Testament people, the Jewish people, which will give us wisdom as we relate to Jewish people today. We also want to ask ourselves about our own heart. You see, it's easy to point my finger and say, well, that's Antichrist. But when I look at Daniel chapter 8 and see some of the qualities of Antiochus Epiphanes, I find when I look inside that I can have some of those qualities. And that I can have some of the arrogance and the deceitfulness that he has. And one of the things is for you as new covenant people who have the Holy Spirit living your life to be really radically opposed to those anti-Christ qualities that flow out of our old nature, that beastly nature that's so destructive. We're also going to learn a lot about how a government can attack God's people. And we're going to learn what the Jews did about it in the Old Testament. And we also need to relate, well, what about us as New Testament believers? So let's look at it. In other words, in this passage, when this Syrian ruler attacks the Old Testament people, Judas Maccabees grabbed the sword. In fact, he grabbed a pretty inferior sword. And then later, he beat the Syrian army, and he grabbed the general sword, and he used that to set his people free. And so it raises the question, what about us? At born-again believers, should Dave Wurtson, the pastor of the Lothian Bible Church, should he tell you to pick up the sword, just like they did about 165 years before Jesus? Those are powerful questions. You're going to have some friends that say, hey, we need to bring back the Old Testament law. We need to reinstitute a theocracy. And you need to think with me together this morning because those forces need to be carefully evaluated and you need to think about what your Savior wants you to do. So turn to chapter 8 of Daniel. Let's pick it up with verse 9. Out of them came another horn, which started small. We've already had the story of, of Alexander the Great Daniel now, in his vision, out of the four divisions of Alexander the Great's empire, he sees another horn. Actually, it's coming out of the Seleucid Empire, which took control of Babylon and took control of of what was the eastern part of Persia all the way to India. And then they fight repeatedly with the kingdom of Egypt, which is the Ptolemies. So you kind of have a map in your head. You know you have Iraq. This Antiochus is ruling over that area of what's now modern-day Iraq, Iran, all the way across the Fertile Crescent to Syria, and then they fight over the land in between, the land of Israel. It says that he grew. He started out small. Antiochus was actually a prisoner in Rome. The Romans were beginning to strut their stuff, and they would defeat one of the eastern rulers, and in order to maintain peace, they would take the son and they would take him to Rome, and that would keep his daddy in the eastern part of the empire relatively calm because he wouldn't rebel because then his son would get killed. Now, it wasn't such a bad life. You were raised with the the Roman leader's sons, the senator's sons, and you got trained and had really good education. So don't feel too badly. And Rome was the New York City or the L.A. of the ancient world or the London or the Paris or whichever city you want to pick out. So Antiochus was raised there as a young boy. When Seleucid was killed in the eastern part of the empire, and Antiochus might have something to do with that, he, he released and there was an exchange. He was now a young man and he got to go home and another ruler's son replaced him in Rome. And Antiochus was actually ruling with a little baby. It started out as a little baby who was the rightful heir of the throne. He let him grow a little bit and then he murdered him. So that's the idea that the little horn wasn't supposed to be the ruler. One of the things you need to get through your head as you look at the stages of the history, there really are bad people who will murder little kids to get what they want. That's reality, and that needs to be in your head so that you understand murder. Thou shalt not murder. There are those that reject God's command, and Antiochus started out his political career murdering so that he could get into the throne. By the way, that was pretty standard procedure in the ancient world. So if you think things are bad politically now... There's nothing new under the sun. Things were, in a lot of ways, were much worse. So he grew into the power. He moved to the south. Look at verse 9. That's the land of Egypt. Antiochus f- moved through the Holy Land and fought against the Ptolemies, which was his rival kingdom in what you know today as Egypt, all the area around Cairo. And he would attack. And the city of Alexandria was growing. And Antiochus wanted to control it. He actually made two invasions to the south. In the second one... He sent his navy to Cyprus, and I talked a little about that last time, which is close to Italy, off the coast of Greece, and that was too close to the Romans. So the Romans sent one of their senatorial representatives because Julius Caesar hasn't become the emperor yet. yet you still have a representative government, the senate's ruling. They sent their representative to Egypt, and that where you have the famous phrase, he drew a line in the sand. The Roman senatorial representative, kind of like the secretary of state, told Antiochus, get out of Cyprus, get out of Egypt now. And Antiochus was arrogant, and he said, let me talk about it with my officials. And the Roman secretary of state said, he took his sword, or took his staff really, drew a circle around Antiochus, and said, you decide before you step out of that circle. Well, Antiochus grew up in Rome. He knew what Roman legions were like. He knew what the Roman uh, navy was like. He knew they were already starting to stomp around the ancient world. And so he said, okay, I'll submit. He was furious. And so that'll help you understand he's got rage in his heart. How many of you have ever had rage in your heart? Anybody have someone that you won't talk to? Watch out. That's the spirit of Antichrist. You get angry when you're blocked, when you don't get your way. Antiochus didn't get his way. The Romans were too strong for him. They blocked his plans. They blocked his dreams. When he stepped out of that circle, submitted to Rome, he came up to the north. And it tells us, look what happens. It says that he came toward the beautiful land, From Daniel's perspective, he's seeing a vision. What land do you think is beautiful in the Bible? Everybody tell me. Which land is beautiful in the Bible? Not Texas. Okay? In fact, I've been in Israel several times, and and I want to debate with the Lord, but, you know, I don't debate with the Lord. I think the Adirondacks, where I grew up, are a lot prettier than Israel, okay? (laughs) Okay? But the Lord says, no, David, it's my land. So, and he's the ultimate aesthetic one. And uh, No, really, if you're from California, Israel's a lot like California. Desert in the south, beautiful mountains in the north, and it is an incredibly variegated land. It's why people want to live in California. They also want to live in Israel. The Lord calls it a beautiful land. A lot of the reasons is because God's chosen that land. So you always want to be watching that land because God's chosen to write history around what's done in that land. It says, I grew, he grew, it grew until it reached to the host of heaven. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Here we're all developing the early rise of Antiochus IV the, the to power. You say, Dave, what's it talking about here? He trampled on the hosts of heaven, even the starry hosts. That's a phrase that refers to God's heavenly army. And just a, f- a verse later, we're going to talk about the prince of the host. Those events that take place on planet Earth are not just about physical things. When I was trained as a chemist, I dealt with physical things. That's legitimate. What's not legitimate is to hold that this present world, just physical things are all there is because that ain't so. There's another world. In fact, most people in the world understand that there's a spiritual world, there's supernatural beings both on the good side and on the bad side, there's great conflict that goes by. By the way, if you're an old-fashioned naturalist believing this present world is all there is, you're very much in the minority today. Like when I used to talk to college students about angels, I had to defend the existence of angels. And I had to defend the existence of demons. I don't have to do that anymore because college students have all seen The Exorcist and they get their factual information from great sources like Hollywood movies. I'm teasing a little bit, but in this world today, the younger generation believes totally in spiritual forces. So in some ways, that's a good thing. But you need to learn about the spiritual forces from accurate sources, not from Hollywood movies, but from God's Word. And what God's Word is telling you here, that as Antiochus gets angry towards the Jewish people living in the beautiful land, especially as he's going to focus on Jerusalem, that angelic armies are fighting against demonic armies, and it's reflecting what's going on on earth. We're going to find that later on in chapter 9 in the rest of Daniel. You say, Dave, what does that have to do with me? You need to understand that your soul, what's going on in maintaining the unity of our body, what goes on in maintaining the unity of your marriage, what goes on as we as a nation try to defend Israel and try to have justice for the Palestinians, making sure that both Palestinians and Israelis don't do injustice towards one another. And we're careful not to go to either extreme. All of those things, as we are debating, doing diplomacy, fighting wars on the physical side, there's a mirror image of that in the supernatural realm. What I'm saying with you is your life is much more complicated than just the physical things that you experience on earth. You need to realize you're dealing with supernatural forces. I also want to tell you that when your Savior died and rose again, he beat all the supernatural forces on the evil side arrayed against us. Amen? So you need to rest in him. You need to trust him. But I want you to know that there's very real conflicts going on between the heavenly armies and the satanic armies. And we know who wins, but that doesn't mean that the war when Antiochus Epiphanes is strutting against the Jewish people in the Old Testament, it was horrible. It was devastating. They were tough times. We think we're living in a tough time because Walmart doesn't have quite as many things on their shelf as they used to, although I think they have a lot of stuff on the shelf. These Israelites are going to get thrown out of their houses. They have armies coming in that murder 40,000 and take 40,000 into slavery. You have people running into the mountains. And that's what I want you to understand. That's the conflict that's going on. It says here that I'll set myself up against the great prince, the prince of the hosts. We know that that's God because it says he took away the daily sacrifice from him. So now in of Epiphanes, if he's angry, what he does, in fact, you can read about this in the book of Maccabees and also in Josephus. For you college students, those are two sources, ancient sources, Josephus is from the time of Jesus, and he goes over the this history. And then the Maccabees comes from a little bit before the time of Christ. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, it's in what's called the Apocrypha. And you'll read about this. What Antiochus did is he said, I'm going to outlaw Judaism, Old Testament faith. He built a Greek gymnasium right below the Temple Mount. And he didn't let any of the Jewish athletes be circumcised. So some of them undid their circumcision, which in the ancient world was tough stuff. It would be in the modern world. And they're running as athletes, as Greeks. Any Jewish mom that circumcised their little baby, Antiochus actually found some of these moms, butchered the mom, and took the baby and hung him up upside down and then butchered the baby. This is heavy-duty stuff. There's a tremendous conflict. The Jewish people, a large number of them, are saying, let's forget about the Ten Commandments. Let's forget about offering sacrifices. What Antiochus does when it says that he, he, he stopped, he took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord God, if you're from a Jewish background, the book of Exodus tells you that the priest in Jerusalem would offer a sacrifice in the morning, is called the morning sacrifice. He offered another sacrifice in the evening called the evening sacrifice, and you would sanctify your day. The priest would be causing you to remember God's going to ultimately send the ultimate sacrifice. Until that day, we put our sins under this commemorative, representative animal sacrifice. It caused them to have tender hearts towards God. The sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem was the epitome of their faith. It was the center of their faith as it looked forward to the sacrifice that God promised would set them free. In other words, you as a believer, when we partake communion and we break bread and we remember our Lord and we remember that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world we're reminded of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. And so I want to put that in that context. In the Old Testament, in 168 B.C., when Antiochus cut off the Old Testament sacrifice, the Jewish people that were committed to the true worship of God, that was the ultimate sacrilege. It was the ultimate cursing of their God. He went further. Not only stopped the sacrifice, it said, it said, but he also, we know in history, that he put a, a, a statue of Zeus, the Greek highest god in the Greek pantheon. It's possible that the, the statue he put in looked a lot like Antiochus because he called himself the Epiphanes, the Manifest One, and then he offered pigs on the altar. So my friends that I was raised with in New Jersey, when I talk to them about this, they get really hot. Because this is the, it's, it's the exact opposite. It is, a, it is a terrible cursing. It is stomping on the true worship of the Lord. And you need to feel that a little bit to understand what Daniel was predicting. Hundreds of years before Antiochus Epiphanes did this. So he stopped the deadly sacrifice. He, he enters the place of the sanctuary. It was brought low. The way that it was brought low is because he went in there and set up this Greek statue... Because of the rebellion, and this is not only the rebellion of what Antiochus is doing, but a lot of Jewish people joined in the the Greek side. They said, let's forget about the Old Testament law. Let's go ahead and live this new life. And so there's tremendous conflict going on in Israel throughout the land. You can read further, Antiochus set up altars all over the land of Israel, and they're offering pigs all over the land. And thousands and thousands of Jews are just going along with that. They've stopped circumcising their kids. They've stopped reading the Old Testament law. They've stopped being Jews. And that's Antiochus' point. His point is, I'm going to eliminate the Jewish people from the earth. I'm going to destroy all that they've given, all that we're studying in the book of Daniel. They want to get rid of all that. So the state has lined itself up to destroy the Old Testament faith. That's what's going on. Because of the rebellion of the hosts of the saints and the deadly sacrifices were given over to it, it prospered this horn. Antiochus prof- prospered in everything he did, and truth was thrown to the ground. I want you to see that phrase, and truth was thrown to the ground. Because truth is being thrown to the ground in our own day. Now, in Antiochus today, what it meant for truth to be thrown to the ground is the Old Testament law that said you offer sacrifices. They have to be sheep. They cannot be pigs in any matter of means. you got to follow the Old Testament law. There's also laws like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. I've already told you how Antiochus threw that law to the ground and murdered the, the person that should have been on the throne. He is a man that lives by lies. He lives by violence. He lives by throwing truth to the ground. He would send his soldiers out. Whenever they found a copy of the Torah, they would cut it up and burn it. So they're trying to systematically remove the Old Testament revelation of God that's in written form, which shows you that it's already present and recognize the sacred scripture. And Antiochus is sending his soldiers out and they're destroying it. What I want to really build into your own heart, you families, especially dads, dads listen to me. You don't have an Antiochus that's going out and cutting up the Bible. You don't have an Antiochus that says you can't come to church today. But you live in a society that is throwing truth to the ground. Your kids are hearing constantly. Truth is my truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. Your kids breathe. It is very arrogant to hold that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because that denies what a Hindu says. It denies what an Islamic person says. And the idea is that you have your truth and it's truth for me. And I have truth for me. You have truth for you and you have truth for me. So I went to my banker the other day. And I told them that my truth was that they should give me $30,000 out of your account that you had saved up went way beyond your emergency fund because that was truth for me. The truth for me is that we should all share now, and Mary and I have some really special needs, and I think that the bank should have an ethic where they take money out of your account and put it in my account. Amen? There's not one of you in this room that would put money in a bank that holds that it's okay to steal. But the national news... If we want to change the rules about marriage, what a marriage really is, it's arrogant, and I'm intolerant to hold that you can't do. If you want to have two wives or two husbands, if you want to marry the same wife-wife and call one of them a husband, it's all okay. And your kids are breathing that. And as moms and dads, I want you to understand. Truth all through the ages is thrown to the ground. Specifically, this is where we find truth. It's not an evil thing. And I use the illustration of the bank. It's not really an evil thing. Thou shalt not steal. That means that it's okay for you to have your house. And we shouldn't live in communal housing. Like I was in Poland under the communist era. It doesn't work very well. Because they denied they stole, it was national policy that everything was stolen from the people, that's wrong. You have a right to have your house. You have a right to have your car. You have a right to work hard and then to be able to feed your family from what you do. You know where all that comes from? It all comes from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. So it's a terrible thing when truth is thrown to the ground. What happened in this chapter Antiochus, in 168, cuts off the sacrifice, throws truth to the ground. All this is going on. In 164, as the chapter develops, it, it tells you this is what's going on, and it says that the little horn is this Antiochus Epiphanes. And then it tells us that God's going to allow this for three years. You have the sacrifices will stop. It gives you a full figure if you're from a Seventh-day Adventist It's not years, because that's where the seven-day Adventists got that the Lord was going to come in the late 1800s, and it didn't happen. Only Then they spiritualized it. If you look in this passage, it says that the daily sacrifices will be cut off. And then it tells you the time period, how many sacrifices are going to cut off if you add together... The 2,300, that's one in the morning, one at night, divided in half, and then divided by 360, which is the length of the year, the days and a year in the ancient world, according to Israelite thinking, you end up with 3.2 years, which is exactly the time period, or very close. We don't know the history quite well enough. It's very close to the time period when Antiochus went into the temple and put a Greek statue there. And stop the true sacrifices. What the Lord was telling his people. I'm going to let that happen. For a little bit over three years. And then I'm going to come in. To you in the history. You can read the chapter as we close. But to you in the history. What happened was. Antiochus sent one of his officers. To the city of Modin. Or Modin. Which was outside of Jerusalem. Not too far. Mattathias. Mattatheus was an old Jewish man, and they called him, gathered all the villagers, several hundred of his people, they erected an altar, and they put a pig on the altar, and they told Mattathias, sacrifice the pig, and follow Antiochus' command. And this old man that had four sons, this is what I'm challenging men to do, men, You hold the key. In our society right now, in our society right now, you decide where you go to church and what you do spiritually by what mom wants to do. And I want to talk to you men. You need to take the lead for the spiritual development. And it's not just a decision about going where people like to go. And you can make a decision as a dad That we will make changes based upon the spiritual health of our family. But I want you to know, dads, you live in a society where 99% of the husbands have let go of spiritual leadership. And so you can learn something. That ain't going to fly. Your sons, your sons are going to follow what your heart is. And I got news for you. Your daughters are going to follow what you really believe as well, for the most part. If you're a single mom, then you're in a church family where there's a ton of brothers that want to stand with you. And we need to reach out to unbelieving husbands, and we need to join with them and be friends with them. But we need to help those children to have a strong masculine influence that's like Matthias, Because Matthias said no one of his Jewish co-patriots in the village went forward and slew the pig and offered it. And Mattathias rose up and got so angry, he slew the Jew that sacrificed the pig. His sons joined with him, and they fled into the wilderness, and thousands and thousands of Jewish men and women went to them in the wilderness. And it took them three years but in 164, in the fall of 164, Judas Maccabees, one of Mattathias' sons. Mattathias died a year after he did what I told you. But three years later, just like God predicted, Judas Maccabees had beaten the Syrians, the Antiochus' forces in the north. He said, it's time to go to Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem and had to fight his way to the holy mountain. The Syrians have a fortress that's overseeing the place of sacrifice. So he sends his Maccabean forces against that fortress and holds them at bay. The worship in the temple had been so forgotten that there are shrubs, weeds, and shrubs and underbrush all over the temple mount. Judas Maccabees go in, they tear down the Greek statue. They sweep the holy place clean. They take some priests, and they go and get some unhooned, uncarved rocks, just rough rocks, because the altar in old Israel had to be not carved by human hands, no worship of our aesthetic, artistic ability. Not that that's a bad thing, but when it came to the altar, it had to be just stones that were were God's stones, untouched and uncarved. And Judas Maccabees with the priests, with men that were clean, they built the altar, and they took a lamb, and they slit the lamb's throat. And for the first time in three years, they sacrificed a clean, holy sacrifice that pointed to the great sacrifice of the Messiah. And it's one of the great moments. That's Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah's about. They brought the candlelight where the festival of lights come, as Antiochus Epiphanes had stolen the golden candlestick. And he stole the table of Showbread. He stole all the articles. He stole millions of dollars worth of God's holy vessels that we learned about in Daniel chapter 1. And Judas Maccabee brought all that back to the temple, put the golden stick back in, and the story is told that the oil didn't run out and the candles kept burning until they could sanctify the holy place for eight days. And that's the story of Hanukkah. What it means for us is, I'm not challenging you as men to mount a rebellion against the state. I want you to learn something. I just got back from Providence, Rhode Island. You know where Providence, Rhode Island is? How many of you are from a Baptist background? Okay. As good Baptists, I'm going to teach you about your heritage. The Congregationalists, which are the Puritans, are in Massachusetts, just a little bit north of Providence, Rhode Island. Roger Williams started reading this book, and he started believing that we should dunk people. Not just sprinkle them when they're little, but you should dunk people after they've made a a legitimate adult, not that they needed to be 21, but they needed to be a child who could make a decision for themselves. Anybody ever heard that theology? That's pretty much what we teach, okay? Roger Williams started preaching that. The Congregationalists in Massachusetts didn't like that. They came to the New World to worship God freely. But in the Massachusetts colony, worshiping God freely meant you worship God the way that the Puritans worship God. So in the dead of winter, they sent Roger Williams into the wilderness. Some Native Americans in Rhode Island, it wasn't Rhode Island then, you understand, they took Roger Williams in in the dead of an Easter winter. It was 20 degrees the last three days. In the, and this is even winter yet. They took Roger Williams in, and he, in Providence, a lot of my friends walked down the street. The very first Baptist church in the United States is in Providence. Now, I want you to understand this. Roger Williams is the one that said there needs to be a divide between the state and the church. And what it means is, is that the United States was set up so that you could worship freely. And the government wouldn't tell you how to worship. It was not saying that we don't have moral influence on the state. It doesn't say that we don't have a prophetic voice. But as we close, I want you to be really careful. Don't confuse the church and the state. Don't intermingle them. The United States is just a temporal government that will last so long. It's responsible for justice and for the welfare of the people. And like Daniel, you need to be involved in it. You need to vote. You need to, a lot of you are involved as government officials. You need to be involved in that. The Lord has called you to do that. Where are the church, though? Now, the Maccabees under old Israel, were the people of Israel. They were a nation. They were a people. And in the Old Testament, when King David was attacked by the Philistines, they took up the sword. But when Jesus founded his new powerful group, he said, I'm going to create the kingdom inside of people. And when Jesus was given the chance to take up the sword... He said no. Now I want all of you to hear this. As a church, we need to stand for truth. We need to raise our kids in truth. We need to honor God's word. We need to turn away from lies and deceit like Antiochus Epiphanes lived for. We need to be sure that we build our own church family and our own individual families on the commitment to what those sacrifices meant. But we don't follow... Judas, Maccabees, and Mattathias when they took the sword and butchered people not or, their, or you know, attacked them and slaughtered them and had holy war against Antiochus. you understand me? That's a difference. In other words, it's perfectly legitimate for the United States or any other sovereign nation to defend themselves. And you can be part of that. But don't make it holy war. And in our own culture right now, there's a lot of confusion about what a church is and what a government is. And I could use the passage today to challenge you. Our culture is become Antiochus following, and we become secularized. So go and fight against your friends. And some of you have friends that are involved in churches that sound like that. I'm telling you No. Telling you no. You're part of following Jesus. Jesus has called us to turn the other cheek. Jesus has called us to influence people spiritually. Jesus has called us to not force all of our friends to read the Bible. Jesus has called us not to force our people to have to believe like us. You say, why is that so? Because there's no way any of you can be forced to really believe in Jesus because it has to happen of your own free will. Are you tracking with me, everybody? This is really important. So what do I learn from this chapter? I want you, because the Lord has told you, like Paul, to be a good citizen of the land where the Lord puts you. But like I told my dad, as our movement began to become a political movement, I said, Dad, I get chills up and down my spine when I sing the old rugged cross. I get chills up and down my spine when I sing the Star Spangled Banner. But they're not the same commitment. And what's real important for us as we read the Scripture to understand the role that we need to play as the church. The Lord hasn't made us a nation. We're not supposed to take up the sword, but we're to go this week and live truthfully and not deceive and not become arrogant, not have a stern face like Antiochus did. We're not to force and cause people not to be able to freely practice their faith, but we're to seek to win them by the power of the truth of the message and the good news of Jesus and by the way that we live.